Welcome to GeoThoughts Talks. I'm Drew Bush. In GeoThoughts Talks, we bring you lectures from our team, partners, and collaborators on topics important to the GeoThink audience. GeoThink's Summer Institute may have concluded over a month ago, but for those of you who missed it, we bring you three talks to remember. This first talk, entitled In-Depth Case Studies and Crowdsourcing, features Renee Sieber and Darren Brabham as they discuss two case studies that examine the actual application of crowdsourcing technologies and techniques to real-world solutions. First, Sieber describes the work of her master's student, Anna Brandis Shaco, in applying crowdsourcing technologies to chronic community development issues in three places in Montreal, Quebec, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Next, Brabham discusses one of his first efforts to research the application of crowdsourcing technology to public transportation planning during a design contest he held for a bus stop at the University of Utah campus in Salt Lake City, Utah. Run as part of GeoThink's five-year Canadian Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council partnership grant, the Summer Institute aimed to provide undergraduate and graduate students from partners with knowledge and training in theoretical and practical aspects of crowdsourcing. Each day of the Institute alternated morning lectures, panel discussions, and in-depth case studies on topics in crowdsourcing with afternoon work sessions where professors worked with student groups one-on-one -on, -one on their proposal to meet a challenge posed by the City of Ottawa. See more on our website on the Summer Institute. Crowd to source content. So 
This is just uh, two panels of 10 pages per language uh, descriptions. Which did she built cartoons explain what this was for uh, her clients, the community-based organizations. <clears throat> so that's something that you might want to think about uh, when you're uh, talking to your client. How do you explain it to them, and how do they explain it to potential users? <clears throat> so, we're, what is crowd map? Crowd map is mapping and texting going together. Is uh, in this case, she uh, Anna was talking about uh, uh, both getting the content visual and then visualizing the content on either a platform like OpenStreetMap or like Bushi's uh, platform. Uh, just to give you a sense of what these things ended up looking like. So you've seen the Ushii example, and this is sort of, this is what it looks like when you start to deploy it. So this is what we deployed in Arcadia Park. And this is what some of the, uh, you know, it's a little blurry, some of what the texting or smartphone messages look like. <clears throat> So we actually had five different applications that we did to try to figure out what were the design and de development and deployment issues when we did crowdsourcing. So Anna actually started by doing an application for uh, McGill University to see how easy or difficult it was to get students to talk about space, to contribute information about space. She then worked in a low-income neighborhood in Montreal um, to get uh, people, and mostly, she originally was thinking about um, opportunities for youth, and that's how she was going to pitch it, and that eventually didn't work, both because of ethics submission problems, but also because um, the youth that she was talking to often couldn't afford to have phones. So, um, well, first of all, why youth? Because there is some argument in the literature that um, youth are very disconnected from place. So why don't you use the technology of youth to try to connect them to place in a certain in a lot of the mobile phone in developing countries literature um, starts with that premise. <clears throat> so we eventually used um, the crowdsourcing application in for two different um, applications. One talk about space and machine, talk about what you value, what's troubling you, uh, what you feel connected to you value, and then we created a, and it, uh, we created a healthy uh, eating application. In the first application, uh, we encouraged uh, mothers to go out with their children and mother and children to suggest to their mothers uh, what they liked or disliked about a place. In the healthy eating uh, application, we um, 
we chose to do it during food fairs, local food fairs, where we would have people come in tents or around picnic tables and they would text at the time. So I encourage you also when you think about crowdsourcing, we often have a fairly narrow and I would say almost antiseptic way of thinking about crowdsourcing that uh, it's all of these isolated individuals and they're communicating at random times of the day. Um, and they may or may not be in the location that they're texting you or they're reporting about. <clears throat> there are other ways to do it. So we essentially had people as opposed to putting, we also had people putting post-it notes on maps during these food fairs, but in this, this particular situation, we'd have people collect in a group and they would text as a collective. Uh, in Acadia Park was a much more typical uh, crowdsourcing application. Uh, this was a group of people who were facing eviction from um, one of the campuses in uh, Vancouver. Uh, there was uh, subsidized housing and the university was going to redevelop the space and uh, evict the low-income students living in the space. So all of us, you're, hopefully you're also seeing, and I talk, we talked about this in the article, that um, the target audiences matter a lot and the urgency or the saliency of the issues matter a lot. And I think that's one of the interesting challenges about the way the city of Ottawa pitched their particular case. What motivates me to talk, to report anything about a park I'm walking through? Uh, I don't know, maybe not much. What motivates me to talk about a park that's threatened by development? Um, encroaching development, for example, probably a lot more than just I'm I'm in a park. I'm feeling great about a park. So one of our biggest findings was about uh, motivation linked to urgency and how the urgency propelled a lot more contributions than just um, I'm here. I see something. I'll essentially Instagram. Our last application uh, was in a, was in a low-income neighborhood uh, in Vancouver, and this was also a community that was facing uh, both densification and the displacement of low-income people from um, imminent new high-rises being put up. <clears throat> One of our main challenges is that CrowdMap as a crowdsourcing platform allows you many different ways to report. So you can report via a smartphone, you can, but you can also report via Twitter, email, going directly onto the site and via SMS. This is both a way to create um, as broad a base of reporting as possible, 
but that came with intrinsic challenges because how do you make sure your application? Because um, another thing about CrowdMap is the reporting software is actually separate from the CrowdMap visualization platform. So how do you make sure that you have sufficient uh, reporting software that can accommodate all these different types, even if the visualization, the, the the data collection platform um, and the data storage platform allows it. So since this is a relatively brief talk, I'll just go from that into some of the challenges and the findings that we, um, we saw while we were doing this research. One was, that the tech changes a lot, that the tech is embedded in an ecosystem of all different kinds of software and hardware requiring system administration and a lot of consideration for technological sustainability. So I already talked to you a bit about the ecosystem that's required for an application like CrowdMap. You need uh, well, we use frontline SMS to handle the short messaging, the texting. We had the CrowdMap platform. We had to get, um, um, Anna went to three different countries to find a plug-in modem that would work with frontline SMS software that was also compatible with the only data plans that she could get in Canada. So, um, I don't know how you delicately contextualize the software and the hardware and the system administration needs to your client in a way that they are enthusiastic about the opportunities for crowdsourcing and yet understand the complexity of a system, an ecosystem that looks ridiculously easy to implement. It was quite obvious to us that when we were doing it, that the moment you changed anything, as I mentioned in the comments before the break, is the moment that you actually needed a system administrator to manage all of the pieces so they would continue working. You do have an advantage in the city that they will have in-house staff or will have some resources to outsource some of this to uh, developers. But maintaining the back end of CrowdMap is not for the faint of heart. You have community organizations. They're not often in a community organization because they love technology. They're usually in a community organization because they love interacting with people. They love fighting the good fight. They are not necessarily in love with sitting uh, in front of a machine and maintaining the Facebook account. And in fact, it's often a good way to understand whether or not there will be sufficient technological sustainability if they can maintain their existing social media platforms. 
And it is funny, and we mentioned this in the article, this uh, diagram on the right, uh, Ushii basically says, there's this tiny little circle in which you need tech support, and everything is general resources. But no, that's not true. And as I was suggesting, and Rob was saying as well, is there were a lot of technological savvy people in Boston, in Atlanta, and on the ground in Haiti to make sure this worked. It still broke, and tomorrow I'll talk about some of the privacy violations that were made in the, when um, that application was deployed in Haiti. <clears throat> One of the things uh, about Ushii is there are a lot of dead sites. Now the city of Ottawa said they wanted something that was maintained over time. I think there are plenty of crowdsourcing examples that suggest that this is a fairly temporal phenomenon and that what you should be encouraging the city to do is look for bursts of activity as opposed to looking for something that lasts for years on end. So some of the other challenges and findings that we had was motivations are strongly linked in the uh, issue of crowd mapping to the temporality. When things were urgent, when our community development corporations or community-based organizations were faced with a crisis, there were lots of people who wanted to report. There were lots of people who wanted to participate. With things that are longer term, things that are vaguer, things that uh, are the result of chronic issues, uh, you don't necessarily get that burst of initiative that allows you to overcome the certain discomforts of, I have to download an app on my phone, or I have to figure out what I need to put into the SMS. All of these things to propel, to motivate people to contribute. So what is it? What motivation do you employ to attract people to move over? You might think is a slight bump, but um, how many people, by the way, Instagram here? Why do you Instagram? I mean, you probably Instagram a lot, right? Right? Why? Yeah. Oh, to, to make my audience hungry, because I just too Right? <laughs> but you, you have some sense of what motivates people to Instagram. It's a particular type of person. Do those motivations apply for, okay, I want to make my audience hungry, I am seeking an audience. In crowdsourcing, do you have that motivation? You may not have a motivation of a person who is seeking to see their comment appear on the map. One other technical challenge of CrowdMath is it's a mediated platform. 
and cities will want this. They will not want the commons to appear on the site the moment that someone submits them. But if the, if the contributors are motivated by that sense of immediacy, you're taking that away from them. Why might the city want to mediate comments? Yeah. Well, I want to answer, but then I have a quick question. Yes. So, so because people who put negative things are, will say things that maybe aren't true or need some context, and they want to provide that context for people to think about whether people should see that comment, right? Yeah. So just out of curiosity, on the comment you just made, are people generally motivated, do you think, by the need to see that a comment reflected immediately? Does that have a big impact on whether people will participate in it all depends upon, that is one of many motivations. Remember I quickly showed that, uh, that table yesterday about motivations? That's one, and one of the things that Dave Coleman found, and I don't actually think it showed up in his table of motivations, was uh, he was looking at TomTom, uh, Tom and this is an in-car navigation device in which people could report things like, the street sign is missing, or there are cracks in the road, or a stop sign is missing. Uh, after a while, people would stop contributing that content because they didn't necessarily want to see someone, you know, the stop sign immediately reappear. Sometimes they did. What they wanted was an acknowledgement that they submitted something. So there has to be some kind of connection back to the contributor. Some people are motivated to see their comments immediately. I don't know how many of you uh, are on Twitter and then you're tweeting and then there's something wrong with the platform and your tweet is not appearing and you're really frustrated. Well, you're responding to a motivation of immediacy that Twitter provides. What Dave Coleman found was that people didn't necessarily need to see a reflection of the post. What they needed was an email back from the government or the corporation who said, thank you so much for your contribution. We really appreciate it. So would that be for primarily negative feedback? No. No? No. In fact, it's uh, from what I saw of his results, it was predominantly for constructive, positive feedback. It was not, you government official, you don't take care of our parks. No, it was like, this um, rubbish bin is broken. Uh, you know, I took the trouble, I overcame the hurdle to report, I want somebody to say, I heard you. Thank you. So what does that imply? That implies that the system is connected to a mail server. You know, when we talk about web servers, it's a mail server. The mail server then generates an automated response that says something. And it wasn't, it didn't have to be personal. It just had to be, yes, we received it. Because the system, you contribute it, almost seems like your information is going into a black hole. What happened to it? The um, so there's there's motivations 
You need to be clear about the motivations for the end users. You also need to be clear about the motivations for the app developers. The city has a lot of motivations for wanting to build this. You need to repeat back to them what their motivations are, or at least you need to be clear that you're addressing specific motivations. It was very obvious to us that when we could hear that clear articulation from the community-based organization for why they wanted this application, that the application was more likely to be successful or at least used for a period of time. <clears throat> Are you standing up for a reason, Alex? Uh, Okay, so I just want to talk a tiny bit about geography. One of the misnomers about Ushii is that it takes your geography and then it maps it. You actually do, if you're not working on a smartphone app, you actually have to explicitly specify the geography. We had to create these really large posters to talk to teach people how to specify geography in a text message. I'm home. Where's that? I'm at our favorite park. Where's that? So it's a, I don't know if all of you are going to do mapping applications. You certainly don't have to, but there has to be a way for you to capture the exact geography in the technological system that you use. For, uh, for this particular application, there were hundreds of people in Ushii trying to infer geography from the text messages that were coming in, and they could get them wrong many times. <coughs> Advertising, very, very important. What's very typical in uh, crowdsourcing is that you will advertise, you will get a spike in contributions, and then a precipitous decline. You have to make sure that this is promoted or suggest that they're going to have to have some budget for promotion. You also, when you're advertising, have to be very uh, concerned about uh, what languages you're using. Uh, um, Anna created posters in seven different languages to encourage people to contribute. Of course, the community-based organization, which was mediating the input, had to make sure they understood the languages to then put that content on the map. Uh, what is the literacy of your users? Do they know that they have to download an app? Uh, this is sometimes also a citizen science issue. If you want them to report about specific species, do they have enough understanding of biology to be able to correctly identify the species? So what kinds of literacy are you assuming of your end users other than I like or I dislike? Um, one thing also, and this is related to motivations, uh, one of our contributors in Lachine said, 
Well, I assume that when I report that a playground is fixed, uh, is broken, someone will come out and fix the playground. How well is your app connected to the mechanism of policy making? If you're implying to your contributors in some of your applications that stuff will happen if they report. If it is in a community-based organization, in our case, that had no ability to make the changes to the playground, if someone reported to the play, a playground problem, you can get quickly disillusioned contributors who will stop contributing to the site. Final thought. Um, there are many slide stacks about successful crowdsourcing. You may want to give some thought to how will the city judge whether the crowdsourcing application is successful or not. Uh, is it the number of contributions, the number of times people visit a, the application, download the app? We only began to uh, consider this issue, um, and it was only when uh, our paper first got rejected because it's a crowdsourcing app. Therefore, the only way it should, will be successful is if you get thousands of contributions. Why a thousand? Why do numbers matter? But often in these kinds of platforms, it's the, it's the quantity, it's the scope, the how much geographic area, how much diversity of contributions, how will they know and how will you be able to tell them what makes for a successful or unsuccessful um, instance of crowdsourcing. So, conclusion, use CrowdMap and crowdsourcing with caveats and that's it for me, thanks. So questions as Darren comes down? Yes. There's currently a project in Kitchener looking at the Horse Trail, which is a regional commuter trail that connects our cities here, and they've employed or deployed uh, a mapping system to identify areas for improvement around cycling and pedestrian when not related to the trail. That question of political risk of giving over communication to citizens came up and the individual project manager was able to convince his higher-ups that it was a worthwhile process. I was wondering if you can comment on how you can help, I guess, find particular municipalities understand that these risks can be mitigated and that ultimately the input is worthwhile. We, in think we talk a lot about the risks to government. Governments are risk averse for a reason, because they have to be super accountable to the people. And the people, uh, the law scholars can correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, cities, when stuff shows on, up on city sites, there is an, infer, an implicit or explicit liability that may ensue, whether or not you have anything to do with that contribution. Uh, so sometimes, 
cannot be reduced. Uh, and sometimes it takes a city culture of, uh, of embracing risk for this to work. Uh, we're working with Edmonton. It's amazing how much they are willing to fail before they get something right. Uh, sometimes it also has to do with if you're in a poor community, maybe less willing to take risks because there will be greater blowback from citizens. Uh, in slightly more wealthy communities, you don't have that problem because the public at large will allow you to take greater risk. I think that if a city has a history of engagement with the public, and the public buys into this. So I guess one of the, the simplest ways is to invite lots of community groups in and have them vet the crowdsourcing application. Don't cut them out, because often crowdsourcing is city to citizens with no, none of these prior intermediaries. So bring them in. They become your constituents that support the, the crowdsourcing effort, even if it's not always as productive as you might want it to be. All right, so I'm going to talk about the next stop design case near and dear to my heart. Um, I haven't really talked about this in depth in a long time, but um, this has become a nice trip down memory lane. Um, this is a case that um, we set out to try to address some of the shortcomings with traditional public participation programs. Um, so when we think about this, town hall meetings, workshops, the like, um, where there's there's a number of uh, papers out there that have looked at some of the uh, interpersonal dynamics, so powerful people in the room drowning out others, uh, the arrival of special interest groups in the room, you know, a planning meeting and the Sierra Club shows up or developers association usually will kind of pull the, the room in one way or another. Um, logistics, some of these meetings are held at, at work hours, you know, on Wednesday afternoon, so who do they really attract? Speed um, demographics usually show up. So, um, you know, in Salt Lake City, Utah, where I was a graduate student at the time, um, you know, this is older white people, basically, um, who were, were usually kind of middle upper class who would show up to express their opinion on various things. Um, and of course, some of this is about um, the challenge here is that it's kind of a one way, we're going to tell you what we're planning and then just tell us what you think, as opposed to really a dialogue. So, Kind of started with this premise of there are some shortcomings in traditional methods, how can we improve those with technology? Um, and he looked at crowdsourcing at the time as, you know, maybe this could work. Because this was, you know, working at Threadless, um, the t-shirt company I addressed yesterday, why couldn't it work for something like this to do transit design or urban planning? Um, so, wrote a paper, and it was the one I think that was in your packet, the planning theory article, it's kind of pie in the sky, what if we could do this? What if this would be so great? Um, that then turned into, um, a very, you know, fortunate meeting that I had with uh, Tom Sanchez with the, at the University of Utah at the time. He's a transportation planning researcher, you know, at Virginia Tech, and he and I sat down and said, well, why don't we just see if we can get money for this and try it. Sure, why not? Uh, so then we submitted this thing to the U.S. Federal Transit Administration. Um, they got funded, which was a big surprise to me, until I found out what they were funding before. Um, so, Innovations in Public Participation was the title of this grant project, and to give you an idea of what innovations and public engagement were at the time, in 2008-ish, when we applied, was, um, you know, we're a city and we're going to, instead of post a public notice to come to a meeting in the newspaper, we're going to send an email out. 
right? We're going to go door to door and gather emails, and then we're going to just send an email. And that's an innovation. People are getting six figures of grant money to do this kind of stuff. Um, so I, well, I was like, oh my god, I just got a grant uh, from the federal government for my uh, PhD program. Um, I found out that it really, they had, they had a bar that was really low. Uh, so, um, but anyway, it was kind of exciting. We tried this out and um, took the Threadless model, the t-shirt company where you rated one to five and submit designs and so on. And just said, let's take that at work, so let's try it for something else. Um, Tom Sanchez suggested bus stop shelters. Sexy. Um, because they're, they're actually kind of a common, people know what they are, people are pretty familiar with this. Um, they're really actually pretty complex. Uh, they have to do a lot of things. In Salt Lake City, they had to um, withstand snow, the greatest snow on earth, right? Um, really, really hot heat because it's a desert in the summer. Um, you know, wind, rain, safety, all that kind of thing. Um, and they're really contained. It's a small piece to bite off. We weren't asking them to redesign transit systems. Um, so it made sense. We tried it out. Um, we ran the first iteration in 2009 in the fall. Um, we hired a web designer to build it, and actually a pretty simple site. It was done on Ruby on Rails and open source code now if you want to just do it yourself. Um, and the site, I'll take you a little tour of it. First iteration was to those bus stops. And right now we have an archived site. This is kind of, this page didn't exist before, but here's what the original site used to look like. Um, Kristen's going to recognize this. It's a long time looking at this stupid site. Anyway, so this was kind of what the page looked like. Pretty simple. Um, and people would go on the site, they could submit a design. Maybe you can't. Oh, you can't anymore. Sorry, sorry, guys. You go on, you make an account. In order to submit a design, to vote on designs or comment on designs, um, you had to make a free account. Right? So it's kind of a barrier we put in place. We figured we'd turn away a lot of participants, but you could view other things for free without logging in. When we did the uh, registration, we captured a lot of information. So without making it too extensive, um, we captured where people were from, we asked them some pretty simple questions about how much do you ride the bus, um, some basic demographic questions about age and race, um, and had you ever been active in a traditional public engagement type meeting before? Because the whole goal of this was to, to improve um, not only quantity of who would come to this engagement activity, but also improve kind of the, the diversity of, of who was coming. Get younger people, get people of color, um, that sort of thing. Get actual bus riders. So we capture all the information. People submitted designs by uploading their images, up to three images, and also description. Um, and they get, so it's pretty cool looking. Um, so here's kind of what it looked like. Um, submitted, and then there would be a, now it's archived, there was a star rating system. You could rate, oh, I like it. People would comment on the left um, and so on. You could kind of zoom in and see different different designs. Um, the original intent of this was, I was thinking, oh, okay, so University of Utah, the, the bus stop shelter was located on the University of Utah campus in a really busy transfer hub. Um, again, convenient, uh, contained. I thought, you know, there's going to be a lot of University of Utah students who will come on and napkin sketches, back of you know, notebook sketches, maybe somebody would pull out some MS Paint and sketch something up, I didn't think it would be very professional looking. Um, and that was the first couple of designs we got. We seeded it with a couple of designs um, from students. It looked pretty crappy. Um, but it was, the, it was the intent. And all of a sudden, we started seeing this, right? Designs that look, whether they're feasible or not, they look really professional quality. Um, people were going into Google SketchUp. Um, in fact, the Google SketchUp official blog um, blogged about our, our 
competition, and kind of that automatically jumped us. Uh, we had major architecture competition blogs around the world in Germany, and someone picked it up. We had no intention of this at all. We were hoping that the Salt Lake Tribune, the Desert Morning News, would pick us up and get some Utah participation. Um, so yeah, we'll talk about why that was a surprise in a bad way as well. Uh, it's a good thing. But anyway, it took off uh, to our surprise. We ended up with lots of design. You can see the quality, you know, the range of, of concepts here. Some of them are quite simple. Um, a lot of these kind of silhouette looking figures. This one's actually a model. I think we got the, the sense that some people were just taking photos of their, you know, senior studio project and submitting it, but you know, whatever. Lots of greenery on roofs, right? It was definitely kind of a, a vibe that, that was running through some of these common themes. Um, this one looks really scary. Bunch <laughs> of boulders. Um, people took some care to really tap into the natural beauty of Utah, the red rock deserts, um, the mountains, that kind of thing. Um, so really kind of took the challenge very seriously. Some of them were way off the map and designed things that looked like they went in a tropical setting. Um, and part of that was because some of the people came from all over the world, which is not what our intent was. Um, so this is kind of what worked in that the winners um, surprised us as well. Uh, we ended up with uh, the top one was called Holden Bus Stop, which really emphasized the process and, and um, modularity of it. And be, be the the uh, efficiency and expensiveness of doing it. This this winter came from Thessaloniki, Greece. Um, which think mine's the second or third largest city in Greece. Um, so that was surprising. Uh, Stop the move from Mumbai. This is actually a collection of a couple of uh, architects who did this. And then Smart Stop from an architecture student out of uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So no Salt Lake City, Utah, Provo, Utah, Ogden, Utah. No Utah winners. In fact, the highest rated Utah person I think was around 19 or 20 in the ranking. So a little bit surprising. The scores you can see are fairly low. On a one to five scale, the, the winner had 3.3, so people were fairly harsh on each other. Um, there was no runaway winner. Um, final breakdown, we had 30,000 unique visits to the site. Um, lots of page views. They spent a lot of time clicking on the site on average. Um, we had Google Analytics installed on the back end before we launched, so we were able to capture, capture a bunch of data, which is something I'd, hear, I'd recommend you doing as well. Um, Nearly 3,200 registered on the site, which is pretty amazing. Right? They took the time to do the survey and register. Um, 260 bus stop designs submitted. Most of them are that kind of professional looking quality. Um, and 11,000 legitimate votes were cast in the competition. Um, so it's way surprising. So what did we do to motivate all this? What was the prize? There was no prize. In fact, we offered no compensation at all. There was no guarantee that we would build this. Guarantee of architectural services, no cash prize, no trophy, no invitation to Salt Lake City to present in front of the Utah Transit Authority, which partnered with us. Nothing. All we said was, we'll put out a press release that you want, which nobody picked up, and we'll put it on the website that you want when we close competition. So, without any reward, we received what I thought was um, more participation than we deserved. Um, people came from all over the place, 127 different unique country territories as Google defines them. We have people from like Vanuatu and the Pacific Ocean and you know, South Tome and all, this, all these crazy places that um, didn't think had much of an interest in bus stop design in Utah. Um, and I think some of them came just to kind of check out the oddity. But um, all the states visited, plus DC, the top one was from more populated states, plus Utah. Um, but also Louisiana, weirdly. Um, found out later that an architecture class um, was assigned to go on this site and check it out. So that kind of boosted our 
participation from some LSU students. Um, India was pretty active in our, our society as well as the Greeks. We had a number of submissions from Greeks, including the winner. So here we found out from the survey we captured, um, about half rode the bus more than once a week or every day. Our top two ratings in our uh, Likert scale, I guess. 57% um, rode the bus at least once a week, so that's good. We've got bus riders, people who um, are really engaged in this kind of thing. Um, but what was really important here is that you know more than two-thirds had never attended a traditional public meeting before, the way we defined it. So these are people who had never actually come to a meeting to express their opinions on anything related to urban planning. Um, and we were able to kind of bring them in. So we saw that as sort of a win. Um, pretty simple claim to make, but um, we had great ages from 13 to 85, based on what people told us. Um, but remarkably, a lot of people were in their 20s and 30s. Um, and only 20% of our uh, people were above the age of 40. So, whereas you'd see 90% of people at a public meeting above 40, um, we've had quite a diverse mix. We also had a diversity, a diverse mix in terms of race, although I don't tend to report that as much because race is kind of a U.S. construct, or a, it's country-specific and how it's constructed, so it doesn't make a lot of sense to report it. But of the U.S. participants we had, the diversity more or less mirrored the U.S. Uh, demographics, so that's kind of um, encouraging. Um, higher than Utah, which is a very white city. Um, did some follow-up interviews with people uh, from the project. So as we captured their information, we asked them to check a box whether they wanted to be contacted for a follow-up interview. So I, I interviewed a bunch of these people and asked them uh, two different kind of sets of questions. Why did you participate um, in various ways? So what made you do this? And found out that people were motivated by some of the traditional motivators we see in all sorts of online participation projects, which is it was fun, it was a low barrier to entry, it was easy to do. The website was really uh, usable and appealing, which was kind of a, a motivator that came up every single time. People thought it was an attractive site that was usable, and, and that was credit to our web designer, but it's definitely something that comes in when, when people are deciding whether or not they're going to get involved in a crowdsourcing activity. This really plays in. Um, variable learning skills, a lot of people said that they were trying to build their portfolio and develop new um, new techniques, some of them were adding these designs to these portfolios that they were building. Um, but then uh, asked them, what you, how did you perceive the competition? What were you, you know, we asked a number of questions about um, values. I asked, I, didn't say, I asked a number of questions about values that they perceived was happening in the contest. So in roundabout ways, was asking, like, you know, was it accessible? Was it, did you feel censored? Did you, so on and so such. And that, these ideals came from a little bit of deliberative democratic ideals. And they more or less kind of mapped onto it, except people expressed some concern about um, fairness. They noticed there was some crazy stuff going on with the ratings. Uh, they were right. So we determined uh, about two-thirds of the way through the competition that uh, there was some cheating going on, as you might expect, even though there was nothing to win. There was nothing to win. <laughs> uh, uh, we identified through some, our web designer helped us do this too, we found basically 20 unique cheaters around the world that were responsible for 27% of the votes. Um, so these 20 people you know, were gaming the system and rating their friends highly. Um, a couple were from India, a couple from Greece, a couple from all over the place. And we determined their IP addresses and kind of matched some things up with patterns and junk comments they were making. We deleted all that stuff. Had to issue a, sorry guys, uh, note to the, to the competition. But a lot of people we interviewed were, were pretty upset about that. They thought that wasn't very fair, even though it shook out with plenty of time left in the competition. Um, so these were kind of the, uh, the values they saw. Um, and then with, with the most recent study, so I'm just, you know, 
I, I kind of wrapped this up. This was part of my dissertation project, and I kind of get some papers out of it. Moved on, and then had some conversations with Kristen. Um, and said, hey, I have all this great data. And you're like, well, send it along. So I'm not a very quantitative person. So um, I sent along this big, massive data that we collected. And um, she said, there's some stuff here. Let's do this. So we did a content analysis. Um, and recently presented this paper at uh, the International Communication Association. Kristen did, because I was at the funeral. Um, but she just presented it and, um, and basically found some, some interesting results. So we, we coded um, the features on each design. So whether design had silhouette figures versus humanoid-looking figures, or the presence of trees and bushes and other greenery, that just random things that we figured might matter. Um, and also analyze the, the textual descriptions. So it's a very long and tedious process. Thank you for exposing me to that. <laughs> Nine months and it was yeah. 36 variables for every single design. Yeah, it sucked really hard. It was really, really. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I don't do quantity work. Uh, it's hard, it's hard. Um, but it was really cool because it was. Able, I, I always kind of had this hunch that there was something in this data, but just never had the time or, or, or frankly, the statistical skill to dive into it. Um, so we were able to find a couple things. You can add some more findings if I'm missing anyone. But what we found was there was a significant negative effect on the overall design score, so on the outcome, where they ended up ranking scoring in the end, the performance. Um, significant neg negative effect was cost had a negative effect on that. So people mentioned in their textual description, hey, it's really cheap to build this, this uh, shelter because our materials are cheap. Um, or it's an inexpensive way to do it. That actually did not kind of lower the scores that we saw. Um, and then the other way around mentioning materials, so saying we're using a um, polycarbonate plastic roof or we're using um, these sort of materials, steel beams and that kind of thing, actually have a positive impact. So when people were specific about the materials, it helped their score. Weird findings in a way, um, but normative ideals for bus stop design didn't necessarily relate very favorably to a bus stop, how it was perceived by the public. Um, and the textual description had as much, if not more, impact than the visuals. So interesting, you think my people were going through and kind of clicking on the pretty things. They're actually reading these descriptions and making their assessments. So that was a little bit surprising, but the impact of, I guess, the communicative dimension, how people are communicating their ideas, had a lot of uh, impact on how they ended up in the competition um, based on this. And um, this is actually, we can see some of this with Kickstarter and some of these studies on why do certain things get funded on Kickstarter, crowdfunding site. It's the way people present their ideas really matter. So the crowdsourcing arrangement is also relevant to, to communicate how your the quality of your ideas is. Anything else want to add that I missed any kind of major? Yeah, you think that visuals, like the way that we design something on Mylar or whatever, um, yeah. often persuades people in person because they're able to talk through the ideas. But in the online context, we actually found that verbal, like textual communication, um, often outweighed anything that was communicated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that was surprising. Counterintuitive. Second iteration. I'm going to wrap up soon here. Second iteration um, in early 2010. This one was not as successful. You don't hear me talk about this one very much because it really wasn't that great. Um, but it was a lot smaller, a little quicker, smaller. Um, it was very, very localized. We didn't tell anyone that was happening except for Salt Lake City. Um, we offered a prize this time. We got UTA to donate a year of bus passes and transit passes on tracks. Um, it's a pretty high price thing. 
The problem with this is University of Utah students get free ones. They get free year-round bus passes. Great, great perk of going there. Um, so they probably didn't participate very much. Um, we were much less defined this time. We said, uh, improve, this, improve this intersection. That's pretty much what we said. It was this busy, busy intersection in Sugar House Park. Um, Sugar House neighborhood is a really nice area of, of Salt Lake. And some people proposed traffic lights, walking signals, bike lanes, cool benches, lighting, all those sorts of stuff. So it was really all over the place. And this kind of speaks to the need to really narrowly define what it is you're asking for people, or you're just going to get stuff that's not that usable. You know, so we had one-off ideas from a bunch of people. Sort of useful, we gave this to uh, we gave this to UTA, and they were able to kind of incorporate it. I was trying to graduate with a PhD, and I really found out you know, whether any of this mattered. It wasn't until actually this last year that I bumped into the guy from UTA um, at an event, and he said, I said, did anything ever come of that? And he said, oh, actually, we built, there was a, there's a proposed idea in the first iteration doing these um, bus stop benches that look like couches. They're like made out of concrete. They're like tufted and looking like couches. He's like, we put a, a concrete couch in Sugar House. So, we're, so there's a concrete couch. Um, so that's the big, that's my big contribution to my dissertation. I led to it. <laughs> uh, change the world. More, more than most, Aaron. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. There's a concrete couch somewhere. Um, so, so basic outcomes, it's laughable when I think about that, how much time it takes. Concrete cast. Um, so the outcome is basically, you know, there is potential here um, for helping in, in planning activities. Lots of refinement, though. It's not a perfect system. I definitely think it should be complemented um, by traditional methods. It's not a, a fix-all. We also know people don't engage. You know, there's digital divide issues, all that sort of stuff. It actually did replicate some of the limitations of traditional methods. So, um, you know, I, the whole point was to try to minimize the role of special interest groups. Well. What if you're from Greece and you submit a design and you get 100 of your friends to go on and vote it? Right? Kind of the same thing. Right? So it's not a perfect system, but it's an interesting kind of um, uh, complementary method. Anti-cheating measures are pretty important. Um, and there were a lot of public, there's a lot of public relations value. So UTA continues to talk about this case to make themselves look cooler. Um, and they, they use it to kind of ask for, for bonds and various things from, uh, from federal agencies and so it's, it's been kind of useful for them in that way. And part of the outcome of crowdsourcing activity may not necessarily be to build a better bus stop. Sometimes it's about educating people on the complexities of planning, right? Or why, why it's so expensive or complicated to plan this sort of thing. So that when you go to the public and ask for a bond to, to build the new tracks line, people are not necessarily as surprised. So there, there could be some potential benefits that are more than just the content of a public contest. Um, but one of the things I really want to emphasize is that there's a ton of data that can be um, mined from these things. A lot of ways to analyze success. So success in this way, we were able to look at common features. Uh, a lot of people in the, the content analysis mentioned green building or grass on roofs or various things that had to do with connection to nature. That was an interesting takeaway, even though the winner had nothing to do with that. So overall, people like that, and it was, it was important. So anyway, that's kind of the rundown of this case. I've got five papers out of this thing, so it's <laughs> bad. So, not good. Um, all right, thanks. Any questions about tank stop? Yes. I think that you know, all the attention that you got for the first one is great. Yeah. How much of that was because this is, that was like an early incident? Yeah, I think it was, it was a lot of it had to do with that. Now, um, I think there was a novelty. You'll flash back to like 2008 to 10. Crowdsourcing was this 
buzzword that was really growing. People really didn't know much about it. You'd argue we still don't, but um, it was it was this. It was really hard to convince them. They were scared of it, but I think um, they latched onto it and, and tried it out. But it made them kind of feel edgy and cool and forward thinking. Which UTA actually has a reputation for that in a way um, for being one of the better training systems. Um, but would this work today? It might. Maybe. I mean, I don't think we did the same. It never got really any news. It never got picked up by any of the major news outlets we actually pitched to, which is a major failure for me as a PR professor. Um, but <laughs> architecture blogs, Google SketchUp blog, the blog of the White House wrote about it. I mean, it was some random places that picked it up that I didn't intend um, that were disconnected, right? Um, by the way, one of the things that I mentioned that's problematic is we, we intended to get amateur you know, bus riders. We ended up attracting professional architects, largely. We interviewed them, almost all of them were architect, architects, architecture students, architect license, whatever all these various levels are. Um, so they were professionally trained in this sort of thing. Um, so we intended to attract amateurs, we got professionals. Um, intended to attract Salt Lake City, Utah, at least US people, we got the world. So managing these publics, a uh, little bit unexpected um, results. So you can't really, unless you have some serious filters on who can participate based on their zip code or whatever, you're going to get the whole world when it's an internet-based thing, because the whole world's on the internet. Not all of it, but the reach is wide, so um, you've got to keep that in mind. So, I don't know. I'm not sure if it would work. I know that interactive Somerville, the Green Line Challenge, there was another thing in Massachusetts that kind of took this and copied it and ran with it a couple of years after we did. They had some, some success, but um, I haven't seen any instance of it since. You're welcome to the code spray. Yep. And this is a Oh, it, I don't know. They, so the whole series has like this little icons okay. on their covers. I was like, oh, I like honeycomb. Let's do that. Because <laughs> bees, hives, crowds. I like the color paint. Yes. So a little tournament. I remember that one saying I was playing your business. So anyway, I think yeah. that's long time. So anyway, nice uh, project. So one, uh, can you elaborate a little bit more about what you, uh, what types of public design problems are being discussed a little bit, but would be suited to this? And, and the kind of my thinking that a lot of planning involves um, you know, processes that integrate analysis, deliberation, and design in different ways with their kind of creativity. So I think this work is really focused Designing bus stop shelters is not that wicked, although it's very complex, it really isn't that hard um, compared to um, designing like a whole block or a whole city area, a whole transit system. I think it's useful for, um, as one activity in a larger program, would be kind of interesting. I think it, it draws the public in, which is a huge value. Um, it gets, obviously, younger people, more diverse mix, people that don't tend to come to these meetings, and that's a plus. Um, but it should never be done in isolation, it's a means to an end. Um, there is a way I probably you could probably do it to have various iterations and, and rounds. You know, maybe you had, you know, let's sit down and have a traditional meeting. Let's talk about policy. Let's bring in data. Let's have experts come up with a couple of short list ideas, and then throw it to the public. Let them kind of design some things. Pull down the top twenty, kind of rehash it. There's no no reason you can't take this and 
instead of making a one big three, four month contest and it's over, there's no way you couldn't just use it as like a couple weeks at a time, one off, you know, as part of a larger iterative process. It's really just, crowdsourcing is not just a tool, right? It's a process. I'm really big on that. It's not a technology. This is just a website, right? It's really all it is. Um, you can do the same thing on Facebook. You can do anything. Um, but it's the process of the give and take between public and, and uh, organization. So, yeah, I mean, just folding that in is, is kind of a plan. I would love to see, um, you know, someone saying, we're going to redesign this downtown district, um, city revitalization, and it's going to take a couple of years to come up with a plan. It would be great to see this happening every couple months, some sort of aspect, like, help us design our branding, our campaign, to label this neighborhood, what are we going to call it? Um, then kind of go back to the, and kind of say, help us design this monument that's going to go on our whatever, you know. We kind of come back and forth to let the public come in at certain places where they're appropriate. But when I say certain places that are appropriate, I don't mean that the public isn't capable of doing expert level stuff. They are. And in fact, the public is experts. They is experts, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're experts. These are these were architects that showed up to do this kind of thing. So that's another myth that's kind of pervasive. But these are amateurs. So I'd love to see it kind of as one tool in the toolbox. Yes? Uh, if you look at New State City, uh, this is a site that we're still having to build. Uh, that uh, Pierre, Pierre Boudreau, who built it, later went on to MIT. The Dilke Brother example. Oh, that abused this idea? Yeah. Oh, what's this called? show you in a sim city sort of way what your budgets would need to be, what the impact is, educate on the complexity of that, like where are we going to settle these people in Salt Lake. Um, that was actually the initial idea for this. Um, the next up line was just not feasible at the time, so we just did a contest. Yep. You mentioned the breakdown of participants broadly reflecting some of the ethnographic profile of the US. I was wondering I'm not sure we asked for that income, actually. No, I don't think we did. Yeah. Yeah. We should have, I guess. Um, although, yeah. Yeah, the IRB at the time didn't, didn't account for that, so. 
But yeah, I mean, it's something to collect. The point, the point to make here is when you design these systems, don't just do them. Right? Try to find a way to capture something. Because that, that's really important to the analysis later. It's important to prove that like we did attract people who don't normally come to the meetings. Um, such a minor takeaway, but kind of the core of what the point of it was. Any other questions? Comments? Concerns, fears? Thanks. GeoThoughts are brought to you by geothink.ca and generous funding from Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council.